Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. It is on page 1023 in the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, and we can begin. Uh, last week, we looked at a good chunk of 1 John chapter 4, and we saw in the text simply that God is love. We, we said that love comes from God in the same manner that, that light comes from the sun. It is in God's nature to love. And we said that God is not simply loving in the sense that he conforms to some other definition of love, but that rather God is love himself. And we talked about both the fact of God's love, the objective reality that he has shown us his love and, and, and he has shown us his love most powerfully through the cross. But then we also talked about the fruit of God's love. The, the truth that God's desire for us is that we would be fueled by his love to then love others. And we said last week that all of us know on some level, even if we have no background in Christianity at all, all of us know on some level that there's a connection between Christianity and love. Nobody left last weekend saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea that God loves us and wants us to love others. But we also said just the reality of life is, is you and I living in the real world with the stresses and challenges that come with that. It can be difficult to be an authentically loving presence in the world. So last week was all about how the fact of God's love can fuel us to become those sorts of people. And this weekend we're beginning the home stretch of this series. We're entering the final chapter of 1 John. And we're looking at a short five-verse passage that is absolutely full of important truth that will help us better understand both the fact and the fruit of God's love. So with that, I want to read the passage in its entirety, and then we'll come back through and and begin to draw out some of the main ideas. This is 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's God's word. So in this passage, we see John address three big picture ideas that are found throughout this book. We said at the very start of this series that this letter that John writes, it is not linear in that it starts one place and sort of goes somewhere else. But rather, it's a little bit more cyclical. There are some main ideas that John returns to again and again and again. And three of those ideas are captured in this passage. And I want to address them one at a time. And to help us remember them, I have, I have chosen words to describe them that all start with the letter A. I'm a little embarrassed by that, but I'm just trying to help. All right. The first big picture idea is our affirmations. In other words, what do we believe? What do we affirm to be true? John has a lot to say in this letter about what do we affirm and believe as Christ followers. Christianity is a doctrinal faith, which means that to be a Christian means you affirm certain things to be true. The second big picture idea is the idea of our affections. What do we love? 
What is beautiful to us? What is worthy of praise? What do we give our time and attention and energy to without even thinking about it? We've talked a lot about our affections in this series, and the truth is, our affections drive so much of what we do. And then the third big picture idea is the idea of our actions. So how do we behave in the world? How do we behave in relationship to one another in light of our affirmations and our affections? And then the result of sort of getting all of these three big ideas lined up properly is the final idea, and the result is the final idea of the passage, and it does not start with the letter A, I apologize. But it's in the text, and that is the idea that by faith we overcome the world. By faith we overcome the world. So we're going to work our way through those three ideas and talk about this idea of overcoming as we get to the end. And if you're following along in your bulletin or on the sermon, uh, the sermon section of the app, uh, your fill-in-the-blank is this. That God's love is experienced through joyful obedience. God's love is experienced through joyful obedience. And we'll see that as we look closer at the text today. So, the first of our three big ideas, the idea of our affirmations or what we believe... And make no mistake about it, what you and I believe matters a lot. We said last week that our lives are the product of our influences, and that is certainly true. And and to a considerable degree as well, our lives are the product of our beliefs. We are shaped considerably by our beliefs. And Christianity, as I said a moment ago, is a doctrinal Faith. It is a faith that is formed by core affirmations or beliefs, particularly beliefs about the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? John writes in first one, verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, we need to take a quick moment to talk about this word, believes. Because there are times in the Bible, if you'll let me get a little grammar nerdy on you for a second, there are times in the Bible where the case of a word or the tense of a word matters a lot. And this is one of those times. This word believes is in the present active tense, which means it is continuous, ongoing action. It refers to something that is ongoing. It has not stopped. So if I say to you, I breathe... That is continuous, ongoing action, right? If I'm referring to that as something that happened in the past but is no longer happening in the present, that's a problem, right? In the same way, I mean, this, this, this phrase could be translated, whoever is believing, right? That, that as Christ followers, we're not called simply to affirm something intellectually in the past. We are called to continue believing and believing And believing. Believing is a continuous action. We choose to believe every day. We're called not just to faith at one time in the past. I would never say to you, well, there was this time in a church service where I came down to the front and I breathed. No, I'm continuing to breathe. We don't say, well, I came down to the front and I believed. Yes, that may well have happened, but we say we continue to believe. We're called to active and continual faith that our good standing before God comes not from our works, but by Jesus' works done for us. Belief is not something only for the past or even for the present. It is for a lifetime. We continually believe. And then it says, who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And I just want to make sure we're all clear that Christ is not Jesus' last name, Right? Like that was not the name on the back of his jersey when he played intramural softball, right? Like that is not his name, that's a title. Christ is the Greek word, Messiah is the Hebrew word. And they're used interchangeably to refer to Jesus. 
And they both mean the anointed one. So for us to say, just briefly want to go through this, for us to say that Jesus is anointed, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, it means we affirm three things about him, that he fulfills three offices or positions in our lives. First of all, that he is a prophet. That Jesus is the great revealer of the nature of God. Hebrews 1 calls, says about Jesus that he is the exact, the exact imprint of God's nature. Right? Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because God is like Jesus. He reveals the nature and character of God for all humanity. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we're affirming that he is a prophet, the revealer of God. Second, he is a priest. Priests in the Old Testament were chosen to offer sacrifices on behalf of, a, of the people. But the priests in the Old Testament would offer an animal as a sacrifice. Jesus did not offer an animal as a sacrifice. He offered what? Himself. Himself. He offered himself upon the cross. He made the ultimate once and for all sacrifice for sins through his death on the cross. And in dying that death, he made complete reparation or atonement for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins through his death. So we rest all of our hope for forgiveness. We rest all of our hope for right standing before God, not on anything we have done, but on what Jesus has done for us. He is our prophet and he is our priest. Third, he's our king. He's our king. There was a time in history where Jesus hung on the cross as a condemned criminal. But make no mistake about it, that time is no more. That Philippians chapter 2 tells us that God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. Jesus is our prophet, Jesus is our priest, but he is our king as well, which means that his law is our law. It means we affirm his authority over our lives. It means we, we consider his teachings and what they mean and how we are to apply them. We live our lives seeking to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And if indeed we affirm those three things, it is evidence that we are Christians. And we need to be clear about this, and I don't mean to be judgmental, I just want to describe things accurately, that vague belief in God does not make you a Christian. Vague belief in God does not make you a Christian. Rather, being a Christian means in part that we affirm those truths about who Jesus is. And 1 John 5 says that if we affirm these things, we have been born of God. Now we're going to reference this idea of what does this mean to be born of God throughout the remainder of the text. But we need to be clear that it has nothing to do with any sort of physical birth, but instead has to do with spiritual birth. There's a famous interaction in John chapter 3, perhaps you've heard of it, where a high-ranking Jewish official named Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he's expressing some astonishment at what Jesus has been teaching. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, Jesus, we've never heard anything like this before. I'm not really sure what to do with it. And Jesus says back to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that didn't really help Nicodemus a whole lot. Because he understandably starts hearing about being born and all he's thinking about is physical birth. But Jesus is, of course, referring to spiritual rebirth. 
And this idea of being born of God, this idea of being born again, is a way to indicate that Jesus does not simply want us to be kinder, nicer, and more ethical people. Although, to be clear, kindness, niceness, and ethics are not bad. (laughs) He wants to change us in such a profound way that we're new people. We are born again. We're not simply improved upon. We are born again. Our values are different. Our affections are different. Our (laughs) desires are different. That is why Jesus says we must be born again. That is the phrase born again Christian is in our lexicon. It is a reference to this. We must be born again. And we know we're born again when we affirm that Jesus is the Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. So that's our affirmations. Now, in moving on to our affections and our actions... These ideas overlap quite a bit. And while there's no denying that affections and actions overlap, we also need to be clear that they are distinct. They are not the same, and it is critical that we recognize the difference. Think of it this way. Actions do not prove affections. But uh, but, uh, actions... Excuse, I'm going to say that again. Actions do not prove true affections. But actions always follow true affections. Actions do not prove true affections, but actions always follow true affections. In other words, it is possible to behave in a manner that is loving, but to do it for the wrong reasons, right? Like, I can be very kind and sweet to you because I want you to be happy, or I can be very kind and sweet to you because I'm going to ask you for money later, right? The actions in those cases very similar. One is loving, one is not. One is loving, one is not. Similarly, we can obey God's commands because we hope that it will gain us some sort of reward or perhaps that it will help us to avoid some sort of punishment. But I would argue that is not love at all. That is obedience that is not motivated by love but is instead motivated by selfishness. And I think it means we've missed the point of what God wants to do in our hearts because God does not call us to blind, passionless obedience. God calls us to love. And see, love doesn't say, okay, what must I do in order to know that I'm good or that I've done enough? Love says, what may I do? In what manner may I express my love? Love does not count obedience as a burden, but rather embraces it as a privilege. And see, listen, you and I, and we talked about this a little bit last week, you and I can fake actions. Or we can act rightly for the wrong reasons. God's heart for us is that we would act rightly towards him and towards one another because of properly ordered affections. That we would authentically love him and authentically love others and that our actions would be the overflow of that love. And listen, I said a moment ago that 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 I believe it is not loving to say, well, I'm seeking to be loving because I want some sort of reward. I think that is true. However, that's not to say that there's not something in it for us when we love God and we love others, but the reward is built into the action itself, right? Loving the people that you love the most, what's the reward for that? It's you get to see them happy. It's that just it it, it fills your heart with joy. The reward is built in to the action itself. The text continues. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. In chapter 4 of this letter, John says that we show we love God by loving people. Now in this chapter, 
It says that we show that we love people by loving God. Anybody else confused? Right. Well, here's what's going on. In this context, when John is talking about obeying the commandments, he is talking specifically about the command to love God and to love others. And here he's saying that if God has captured our affections, then that will produce loving action towards him and others. Because see, part of what happens when we are born again is our affections are adjusted so that we can love others with the love that God has shown us. In our new birth, God gives us a new nature so that we're equipped and empowered to love. Now, the connection between affections and actions really comes to a head here in verse 3. And this, man, this verse is so important. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commands, and His commandments are not burdensome. When we are born again, when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, it will not simply produce a willingness to live in obedience. It produces a desire to live in obedience, right? And this verse is so important, but it is very easy to misunderstand. It is certainly true that part of loving God is obeying His commands. But that's only part of the equation, and we need to be very careful to not equate commandment-keeping with loving God. They are connected, but they're not the same. See, if we misunderstand this verse, we could walk away thinking it means, well, I need to prove that I love God through my obedience. And that is not what this verse is saying at all. But it is saying that God has not called us simply to external obedience. That instead, God desires for us to experience His love in such a profound way that our hearts have been transformed and we desire to obey His commands. And when that happens, the commands of God are not burdensome. When that happens, we see God's command to love Him and love others. We see those commands as gracious gifts. And it means we deeply desire obedience. And and that's formed not out of some paranoid desire to be good enough or to appear holy or anything like that. But rather, it is formed out of a desire to express our love. I mean, just think about this in any sort of authentically loving human relationship. Loving actions are present. Now, they might look different depending on the nature of the relationship or the personality of those involved. But if there is truly love between two people, whether it's romantic love or familial love or or, or friendship love, loving action will be present. Love will be expressed through joyful, concrete action. And where love is present, loving action is not an obligation. It's a joy, right? When when I look at my own life, I I think about just the people that I love the most. I'm not like, oh, man. Got to spend time with, you know, the person I love today. They'll get mad if I don't, right? Now, their birthday's coming up. Guess I better buy them a gift. All right, whatever, right? For the people that I love the most, doing those things is a joy, right? And you know this is true in your life, too. When authentic love is present, loving actions are present as well. And that's not a burden. Why? Because we love others and we want their joy. In a similar manner, God invites us to joyful obedience. Obedience that is born out of love and affection, not fear and religious performance. He says, my commands are not burdensome. And and, and listen, if we find the commands of God to be burdensome, it means one of two things, in in my opinion, and, and don't miss this. 
either it means we have misunderstood God. And I don't know your background. I don't know what environments you've come from. I don't know what, what people you've sat under who've tried to sort of motivate you in religious context through guilt and manipulation or have maybe given you this picture of God that he is angry at you or that he's like holding a bar for you to, you know, jump up and, and reach or anything like that. But when that is present, we will find God's commands burdensome. But it's a misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding. That's burdensome. That's not from God. We find God's commands burdensome when we misunderstand Him. But it's also possible that if we find the commands of God burdensome, it means we have given so much of our affection to something else that now loving God and loving people feels like a burden. Because we've given too much of ourselves. Like, for example, if I have given too much of myself to a hobby, I'm not against hobbies, I got lots of them. But if I've given too much of myself to a particular hobby or interest, then loving my wife and kids will feel like a burden. What is that? That, that is disordered affections, right? That, that, that is, that is getting priorities way out of whack. And, and, and listen, I think for some of us, loving God feels very abstract or even difficult. Because what we're doing is we're looking to something else to give us the wholeness that only God can give. That only God can give. But the big idea of of this part of the text is that God is not looking to burden us with random rules. He shows us the path to life, right? I I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. It's a famous passage. and, And I particularly love the way that Jesus' words are translated by Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. I really think he captures the heart of what Jesus was getting at. He says this. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live lightly and freely. It sounds nice, doesn't it? That's Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. See, God gives us his commands, but when we love him, his commands are not a burden. I believe obedience becomes a burden when it's done out of a desire to earn something or done out of a desire to avoid something. That's stressful, burdensome obedience. But the obedience that Jesus invites us into is joyful. And it's an expression of love. And listen, again, I don't, I don't know your background. But even if you can't relate to thinking about obedience to God in that way, we all have areas of our lives where authentically loving action is inspired by real affection and it's not burdensome to us. Because listen, what you earnestly desire from the depth of your being, what you earnestly desire, it is never a burden. It is never a burden. I will give you two silly examples from sort of one broad category of my life. So I've always, my kids are seven and five, and I've always coached my kids' sports teams. In fact, I've never watched either of my kids in a practice because I'm either running the practice or helping to run the practice, right? And I coach my kids sports for a few different reasons. I coach my kids sports because I just, I like sports. They're fun, you know. I coach sports because I love my kids. 
And, and by the way, not in that order, just so we're clear. <laughs> I love sport, and I, and, and, I, and I coach because it is a tangible way for me to invest in the young people in my community, and that is a high value for me. I see it as an opportunity. As much as I love sports, I see sports as an opportunity to teach kids skills and attitudes that will benefit them in areas of life that matter way more than sports ever will, right? Yeah. And, 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 and if you're a coach, I hope you know that that's true and important. And, and this, last, this last season... I was head coaching my, my older son's team and I was assistant coaching with my, my younger son. And I absolutely loved, loved, loved the experience I had with my older son's team. I coached with two other dads who have become friends and we just, we just enjoyed being together and sort of planning things out together. We had, we had a great group of kids, kids who were just a joy to be around. I loved planning practices. I loved going on YouTube, God bless YouTube, and looking at, looking at, you know, getting ideas for drills and different things we could do at practice. I loved texting back and forth with my other coaches about, oh, let's try this, let's try that, and sort of getting all nerdy about it. I loved being with the kids. I was always a little bit bummed out when seven o'clock rolled around and we had to stop practice, right? I loved seeing them succeed. I loved getting down on a knee in front of a crying kid who was crying because he failed and speaking life and encouragement into him, right? I'm not going to lie. I love the games. Win or lose, they're a whole whole lot of fun. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Every single minute I invested in that season was a joy. Why? Because of the immense value I see in investing in my kids and investing in the young people of our community. Let me give you another story. A few Wednesdays ago, I was able to arrange my schedule so that I could leave work in the middle of the day and go volunteer in my younger son's kindergarten class for his Halloween party. So for 90 minutes, this is what I did. I sat at a table, and kids came by about six at a time, and we made witch hands together. Using little plastic gloves, they would put a candy corn in each finger, and then fill the glove with popcorn, and they would tie it up, and then, you know, go put it in their cubby, and then we'd have a little game we would play until we rotated to the next station. Let me be clear about something. I don't care about witch hands. At all. And I am much more at home on the soccer field than I am at the craft table, right? This was not me living into an area of strength, all right? 90 minutes. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved high-fiving the kids when they sat down. I loved helping them get the little stuff in the right spots. I loved trying to keep the kid from melting down who was having a hard time. I loved our silly little game we played at the end of it. The teacher was so funny. She even told me, you're probably never going to come back here. And I said, what are you talking about? This was awesome. I loved it. I loved it. Why? Not because I loved the activity that much, but because I love investing in my kids and I love investing in the young people in this community. I see the immense value in it. What's the point of me telling you those stories other than working in some stories about my kids? (laughs) I believe God wants loving him and loving others to be like that. So sometimes when we seek to love God and love others, we will be in our element like I am on the soccer field with this crazy bunch of seven-year-olds, like I will be on the basketball court in two weeks with the same coaches and a lot of the same kids. Can't wait. Obedience will be pure joy. 
Sometimes our desire to live in obedience will take us to places outside our area of strength, like the kindergarten craft table. But it's not going to be a burden. Why? Because just like I was was able to find joy in that moment because of the supreme value I place on investing in my kids, the supreme value of following Jesus will make obedience a joy, even in those moments where it takes us out of our areas of strength. God wants us to love him and to love others because we see how valuable it is. And I want you to listen. Listen to these words that I'm going to read to you from Scripture that help us understand what God wants us to experience when we live in obedience to Him, when we authentically love Him and then authentically love others. You will see He does not want to burden us. He wants to delight us. People, listen, people might try to burden us. People might even try to burden us in the name of God, but God does not want to burden us. Listen to these passages. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed And I hope you know the word blessed, that's like a church word. I get it. It just means happy. Happy is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. When our delight is in the law of the Lord, what happens? It makes us stuffy and annoying and religious. No, it makes us happy. It makes us happy. Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. When our delight is in Him, it changes our hearts so that what we desire is what God desires for us. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God, your law is within my heart. Psalm 112, verse 1, happy is he who fears, and remember this word, that means reverence, not terror. Happy is he who fears the Lord, who finds delight in his commands. And then one last example I'll give, and there are dozens more. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I don't know about you, but I did not catch any language about burdens in any of those passages. God does not want to burden you. He wants to delight you. He wants to delight you. God doesn't want you to obey in an effort to earn something. He wants you to obey because it is your heart's desire. There's an author and pastor by the name of Jerry Bridges. He helps us recognize the connection between God's command and and love in saying this. He says that love provides the motive for obeying the commands of the law. But the law provides specific directions for exercising love. In other words, it is love that causes us to come to God and say, God, I love you, I want to obey, so what do I do? And it's God's commands that say, okay, well, if you love me, then continue to love me, and then let's, let's, let's share some of that love with other people. Let's share some of that love with other people. It helps us put our affections into actions. Love for God and love for others. It's not, it's not sentimentality, it's not mere emotion. Love for God and love for others is concrete action and obedience to God's loving and life-giving commands. So those are our three big themes, affirmations, affections, and actions. What's left is the result. What happens if we get these things right? John gets to that in verse 4. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What's he talking about here? This means that there are forces in the world that can make it difficult for us to love God and love others. I don't know if you've noticed that, or maybe it's just me. Right. Right. But when the New Testament talks about the world in the negative sense, it's, knocking, it's not talking about people. We need to be very clear about that. But rather, it's talking about forces that are at work in the world that make it difficult for us to love God and love others. And earlier in 1 John, we get a sense of what these forces are. In 1 John 2.15, we're told, Do not love the world or the things of the world. Then in verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, we did a full teaching on this passage several weeks ago. But in short... These forces of the world include excessive desire for what we don't have. That's desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes. And excessive pride in what we do have. That is pride in possessions. The world corrupts us either with excessive desire, so we're obsessed with getting more. And this is like, let's just be honest, this is like excessive desire season, right? Anyway, I'll know more about that. Or... Or we get prideful about what we do have. We become entitled. We start talking about or thinking about how much we deserve, right? We covet what we don't have. We're prideful about what we do have. And when we crave the things of this world, when we are sort of ruled by those passions, we will find it burdensome to love God and love others. When we're asking the things of the world to make us whole, we will find loving God and others, it'll be somewhere between an obligation and an annoyance. Right? And listen, you and I, we might crave good things. We might crave bad things. The point is, we're craving things more than we're craving God. We're making idols out of that which is temporary. And listen, so many of the problems in our world, so many of the things that knock each of us individually off course, and, and so many of the things that lead to the brokenness we see in our world, comes back to this very issue that we excessively crave what we don't have and we're excessively prideful about what we do have. So, so what can we do about it? Let's see if we can begin to pull this passage all together. When we are born again, when we are made new, that it treats not simply the symptoms of our idolatry or the symptoms of our craving. Listen, I can, I can treat the symptoms of my craving for the things of this world by just not going to Amazon.com. Right? That is treating the symptom, but that is not dealing with the disease. Right? When we are born again, it doesn't just treat the symptoms, it treats the disease. It eradicates the disease. Our cravings for the world are overcome by a new and different craving, a desire to love and serve God and a desire to love and serve one another. And when that happens, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes lose their power over us. They lose their power over us. And that is such a gracious gift because I think about this all the time. This is the crazy thing about our excessive craving for more is the only way for us to, apart from God, the only way for us to understand that getting more will never be enough is to get it. Right? And to find that we still are left looking for more. Still love looking for more. But Jesus breaks the power of all of that. 
Our faith is no longer in the world. Our faith is in Him. And because of that, we can say that we overcome the world by our faith. Because faith gives us a new heart with new desires. We overcome all that would keep us from loving God and loving others. We overcome that which is temporary. We overcome that which is materialistic. We overcome that which is driven by vanity and ego and superficiality. And our eyes are open to see that Jesus is better than the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. And then John says in verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we, how do we overcome the world? We are born again. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We are awakened to the truth of that statement. He is the Christ. He is our righteousness. He is the guarantee of our right standing before the Father. That is our affirmation. And, and when we know Jesus and we see who He truly is, we see all that He has done for us, we experience the objective fact of God's love for us, it changes our affections. So that we're not simply willing to be obedient, but we desire obedience. We long to know him and to walk with him and to obey him and to represent him in the world. That's our affections. And then that changes our actions. We can love God and love others rightly, not because of some ulterior motive, not out of duty, not out of any sort of religious obligation, but out of grace and joy. So we experience the love of God through joyful obedience. But then, last thing, and we'll, we'll close with this. What do we do when we fail? What do we do when we fail? Because let's just be honest. We've spent this last little bit talking about some very high-minded ideas. Like, hey, we can be born again, and that's going to change our affections, and we're going we're gonna to love things differently than we did, and that means we're going to be able to love other people without ulterior motives and all of this other stuff. And some of you, if you're anything like me, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, that all sounds well and good. But I've been at this whole following Jesus thing for a minute and I'm still having a hard time with that. Right? Because listen, even all of these high-minded ideas we're talking about can begin to feel burdensome when we're confronted with the fact that we're not living up to it. So what do we do when we fail? There's no guilt. There's no shame. Instead, we remember that in our sin, in our failure, we have an advocate, First John 2 says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is an advocate who has nothing but grace for us. It is grace that picks us up when we fail. It is grace that makes us born again. It is grace that continues its work to transform our affections and our actions so that the things of this world have less of a hold over us. It is grace that empowers us to overcome the world as we believe and believe and keep on believing and keep on believing and live with joy joyful obedience to God's command to love him and to love others. And it's through, it is through that joyful obedience that we overcome the world. It is through that joyful obedience that we love God and love others. And that is indeed God's unlikely secret for us to live victoriously. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. These men and women would absolutely love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. They're hoping you'll come see them. So if there's anything they can pray for you for, please do come up and see them. But, but, but maybe something just specifically. For, for some of us in this room, we might be saying, okay, I hear all this talk about affections, but if I'm being honest, my, the affection's just not there. I think my affections for the things of the world, I'm having trouble relating to God in, 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 in that manner.
that maybe you just need to have these men and women pray for you to that end, to just pray God's truth over you, to remind them of God's love for you, to stir up your affections for him all the more. If that would be helpful to you, please come see them. And like I said, anything else, come see him for that as well. But let's close in just sort of a general prayer and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the fact of your love and we thank you that you desire for your love for us to produce fruit out into the world. God, I pray that we would be uh, a community that is clear on what we affirm to be true, that your son Jesus is the Christ, that he is our prophet, priest, and king, that he died on the cross so that we might have restored relationship with you. I pray that that truth, whether we're hearing it for the first time or we've heard it, it feels like every day of our lives, would continue to transform our affections so that we might love you all the more because we know that in loving you there is life. And God, as we love you, would you transform our actions so that we might be individuals, we might be a church that is an authentically loving presence in our community. And we pray all of this would be for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.